Chapter 12 of Survivor's Tales of Famous Crimes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marcetich, August 2010. Alexandria, Virginia. Survivor's Tales of Famous Crimes. Edited by Walter Wood. Chapter 12 an unsolved mystery, the Ardlamont riddle. For ten days, the Lord Justice Clerk and a jury were occupied at Edinburgh in trying to unravel what was known as the Ardlamont mystery, but their efforts failed, and the mystery remains unsolved and as impenetrable as ever. An army tutor named Alfred John Mosen was tried on the double charge of attempting to murder and of murdering a young militia officer named Windsor Dudley Cecil Hamburg at Ardlamont, Argyleshire, where Hambro had taken a mansion for the shooting season. The trial began on December 12, 1893, and finished on December 22nd, when the jury returned the Scottish verdict of not proven. A remarkable and mysterious figure in the case was a man named Scott, an alleged accomplice of Monson. Scott disappeared, and when the trial began, he was called upon to present himself. Failing to do so, the judge passed upon him the sentence of outlawry. The story of the trial is particularly interesting because it is told from the narrative of Mrs. W. H. Keene, whom, in Pimlico, Scott, or Davis, as he called himself, lived for two years. More than twenty years ago, my husband and I occupied the house in Sutherland Street, Pimlico, part of which we let. The drawing-room floor was occupied by a family who called themselves Davis, father, mother, and son. The son was about thirty years of age, thin, and five feet eight or nine inches in height. He had a long, clean-shaven face, with a sallow complexion, dark blue eyes, and dark hair. Altogether, he was one of the nicest men you could meet. He lived with me for about two years, and I understood that he and his father were engaged in bookmaking, though it was given out that their actual occupation was picture-dealing. I say that the name was Davis, but apparently business was done in the name of Sweeney, because often enough letters and telegrams came to the house addressed to Sweeney, and these were, by arrangement and instructions, delivered to the Davises. There was a daughter, but she does not come into the story, and there was another brother named George, who went by the name of Sweeney, and was a hall porter at the Westminster Palace Hotel. The Davises had been called with me for the long time I have named, and I had never any reason to suspect that anything was wrong, certainly not with Ted, as young Davis was called, but on the morning of September 5th, 1893, Mrs. Davis came down to me crying bitterly. I said, What's the matter, Mrs. Davis? Oh, Mrs. Keene, she answered. Ted's gone away, and we shall have to give up the rooms. 
Don't worry, I said. He'll soon come back again. But I soon found that there was cause indeed for tears and trouble, and that Ted Davis had completely vanished. I learned that Mr. Wiggins, who had my top rooms, had carried Ted's boxes downstairs and put them in a little spring cart early in the morning. I was upset and puzzled, but never suspected that anything was seriously wrong until one night about a fortnight after Ted Davis had disappeared. A mysterious man came to see me and asked if I could tell him where Davis had gone. I said, no, for I had not the least idea in the world. Then the visitor asked if he could see me privately, and when he had entered the house, he began to talk about a matter that was then arousing intense public interest, the Ardlamont mystery. To my amazement, he told me that Ted Davis was wanted in connection with that strange affair. Then I knew that my mysterious visitor was a detective from Scotland Yard. He asked me what I thought about the case, and if I considered it likely that Davis was mixed up in it. Never, I declared. He has been in my house for two years, and has always behaved as a perfect gentleman. Then the detective told me the extraordinary story of Ardlamont. The newspapers had been full of it, but I am afraid I was too busy to read the newspapers, and therefore did not know the circumstances until the detective acquainted me with them. I was to become familiar enough with them later on. The detective told me that Mr. Monson and Mr. Hambro had gone out in a boat in Ardlamont Bay to fish, Davis, who was known as Scott, staying ashore, and that Monson had tried to drown Mr. Hambro by drawing a plug and letting the boat fill with water. He told me, too, that next day, August 10th it was, the three men left Ardlamont House to shoot, two of them, Mr. Monson and Mr. Hambro, each carrying a gun. The detective said that Mr. Hambro had been shot dead in a wood near the house, and it was supposed that he had been murdered by Monson and Davis. Monson had been arrested, and Davis, as I shall call him, was wanted, but he had disappeared, and not a trace of him could be found. That was a story which was told me by the detective from Scotland Yard. I was quite frightened, I can assure you, especially when the detective told me that my house had been watched for some time, but nothing had been seen of either the going of Ted Davis or his parents, for by this time, the father and mother also had left. They must have known that the police were on the watch, and that their son was wanted, and I saw then that there was good reason for the terrible distress which Mrs. Davis showed when she came and told me that they would have to give up the drawing-room floor. I soon learned that my husband and myself would have to be associated with the case much as we disliked being concerned with it. But the police explained that our evidence was necessary, and that we had no option in the matter. So, in due course, a party of witnesses set out from London for Edinburgh, 
where Mr. Monson was to be tried, and I, for one, sat in court for ten full days, and listened to the wonderful and patient attempts to unravel this terrible mystery, which remains a mystery still. They were very long and trying days, so that we were always thankful when we could get away to look round Edinburgh, or rest quietly at the Temperance Hotel where we were staying. It was not until the sixth day of the trial that my husband and I were called. By that time, more than fifty witnesses had given evidence for the prosecution. The story which was slowly told was very remarkable, and, naturally enough, I was deeply interested in it, as I knew so well one of the men who had become so singularly associated with it and had completely disappeared. The police searched for him, friend and foe alike, did their best to get at him, and advertisements were put in the principal newspapers, but Ted Davis never turned up. He had vanished. That was all that was known. I knew nothing about Mr. Monson personally, but once I had seen Mr. Hambrough, he was then talking with Davis in the street, near my house. I did not know who he was, but my husband explained his identity. I will tell you the story as it was built up in court. No speeches were made in the beginning. The tale was told gradually by the witnesses, and when everything had been put before the jury, counsel delivered their addresses, and the Lord Justice Clerk summed up. The trial was remarkable because of the appearance of a large number of witnesses of a class who are not as a rule associated with murder trials, and because of the revelations of many sordid details relating to a number of good-class people. Mr. Cecil Hambro was little more than a boy. He was the son of Major Hambro, a retired military officer, and it was intended that he also should go into the army, his mother hoping that he would join the guards. It was through an ex-army officer, Mr. Beresford L. Tottenham, who had been a lieutenant in the 10th Hussars, that Mr. Hambro met Mr. Monson. That was in 1900, when Mr. Hambro was only 17 years old. Mr. Tottenham was a financial agent, and he had had dealings with the major. Mr. Monson also became acquainted with the major, and the result was that it was arranged that Mr. Monson should have charge of young Mr. Hambro as a tutor and train him until he passed into the army. It was arranged that Mr. Monson was to be paid three hundred pounds a year for his services. The major was in serious financial straits, and Mr. Monson made efforts to get him out of them. But trouble arose between the two men, and in consequence of the unpleasantness, the major did all he could to get his son away from Mr. Monson's care. Mr. Monson at that time was living at Risley Hall, near Ripley, Yorkshire. But these efforts were failures, and Mr. Hambro continued to live at Risley Hall with his tutor. There is no doubt that he was thoroughly enjoying life, that he had plenty of money, 
and that he had no wish to go and live with his father, who was in rooms and in constant financial embarrassment. The major had got through a good deal of money, but there was a large sum which could not be touched, and to which Mr. Hambro was entitled when he came of age. Mr. Monson himself was undoubtedly in a very bad financial state, and, as a matter of fact, in 1892 he was declared a bankrupt. He seems to have set to work steadily to try and raise money on Mr. Hambro's expectations, but he failed. A great deal was said one way and another during the trial about financial matters, and some curious things were revealed. It was largely the object of the prosecution to prove, of course, that the prisoner would benefit greatly by Mr. Hambro's death, but, so far as the prisoner was concerned, his counsel did his best to show that, so far from Mr. Monson benefiting by Mr. Hambro's death, such a thing would be a real calamity to him, because it would stop his source of income. Having failed in the direction named, Mr. Monson made successful efforts to lease the shooting at Ardlemont for Mr. Hambro. A lease was prepared and entered into, by which Mr. Hambro became the temporary tenant of Ardlemont House, and there the young man went, with Mr. and Mrs. Monson and their children. By that time, Mr. Hambro had become a lieutenant in the West Yorkshire Militia, and it was expected that he would enter the regular army. As soon as Mr. Hambro was comfortably in possession of Ardlemont House, steps were taken to insure him, and two policies for £10,000 each were taken out on his life, and Mr. Hambro promptly took steps for the payment of these large sums of money to Mrs. Monson, in case anything happened to himself. It was at about this time, entirely unknown to myself, of course, that Davis appeared at Ardlemont. He was taken to the house by Mr. Monson, who introduced him as Scott, explaining that he was an engineer who was going to inspect the boilers of a yacht which had been bought by Mr. Monson for Mr. Hambro. Davis, as Scott, immediately became a member of the family party. He arrived at Ardlemont on August 8th, and from that time events moved swiftly towards their tragic close. On the following night, the three men started out on a fishing expedition in Ardlemont Bay. They had secured the use of a small ordinary fishing vessel with a net, and Mr. Monson and Mr. Hambro went out in her, but Davis remained ashore. What actually happened in the boat will not, I suppose, ever be known, but it was declared that Monson deliberately tried to bring about the loss of the boat by drawing a plug and letting her fill with water, and in that way drowned Mr. Hambro, who could not swim, though he himself could. At any rate, the two men returned to Ardlemont House at midnight, and it was then seen that they were drenched. The story told was that the boat had upset, but that, luckily, 
both the occupants had escaped. It was a result of that sail in Ardlamont Bay that Mr. Monson was charged with attempted murder, but a heavier and far more serious charge was to be made, that of murder itself, arising from the strange happenings of the following day. Soon after six o'clock on the morning of the 10th, the party at Ardlamont House had begun what would in any case have been a long day. Mrs. Monson and the governess and the children went off to Glasgow for the day, and soon afterwards the three men went out to shoot, guns being carried by Mr. Monson and Mr. Hambro, but not by Davis. They were seen walking away from the house, and passed out of sight and went into the wood, to all appearances carrying out a little shooting expedition in just the ordinary way. Some time passed, and then the household was thrown into a state of terrible commotion, for Mr. Monson and Davis returned, and Mr. Monson told the butler that Mr. Hambro had been killed. The butler hurried away and tried to find the body, but he could not do so. Then Mr. Monson went with him, and they came across poor Mr. Hambro, lying on the top of a dike, to which he had been lifted from a ditch. A rug was got, help was summoned, and the dead man was carried to the house, and a doctor sent for. Mr. Monson was badly upset and was crying, but he did not seem to trouble much about the body. The story he told was that Mr. Hambro had shot himself. A doctor was summoned. He had to come some distance, for Ardlamont is a lonely place, and as a result of the information that was given to him, he conducted that the affair was an accident. But a few days later, he was satisfied that the death was not brought about in the manner he had been led to suppose. Judging from the stories that were told in court by witnesses, it seems to have been a terrible and distressing time at Ardlamont House after Mr. Hambro's body had been found and taken in. Davis was not long present, and soon after the doctor appeared, he left the district. The dead lad's parents were telegraphed for, and they went to Ardlamont, and not long afterwards the body was taken all the way to Ventnor in the Isle of Wight for burial, Monson going with it and attending the funeral, after which he returned to Ardlamont. It seems as if the matter was now at an end, and that it would soon be forgotten, but inspectors came from the insurance company, and I suppose that very large sums are not paid without inquiry when only a single premium has been paid, and when the death is of a very suspicious nature. Well, inquiries were made, and they were continued in many quarters, with the result that Mr. Monson was taken into custody on a charge of having murdered Mr. Hambro. Mr. Hambro's body was exhumed, and photographs were taken of the wound at the back of the head, and the doctors prepared minute details of the fatal injury. There was a great hue and cry for Davis, and extraordinary efforts were made to find him, but not a trace of him could be discovered, and so the charge against Monson 
only could be proceeded with. These trials are wonderful affairs to the ordinary mind, and it would be hard to find one more wonderful than this Ardlamont case, because of the efforts on the one side to show that death was caused by murder, and on the other side to prove that it was due to accident or suicide. There was not a circumstance, however small, connected with the affair which was not noted and made use of, and some astonishing details were given of the marks made by pellets at the spot where the body was found, and of the condition of the ground in the neighborhood. And every detail was given, too, of the condition of the skull and the injuries that had been received, ghastly evidence that one would much rather not have listened to. But in these cases, justice alone has to be considered, and so everything must be gone into, and nothing shirked. I remember that evidence was given of experiments that had been carried out with guns on corpses, with the object of learning the effects of gunshot wounds on the head. There were also many experiments on newly killed horses, animal skins, and models of men's heads. And, so far as I remember, some of these experiments were conducted with the guns that were in the possession of Mr. Monson and Mr. Hambro when the tragedy occurred. When all the witnesses had been called, I remember that one of the last things stated was that a firm had been retained for the defense by the prisoner's mother, the Honorable Mrs. Monson. The Solicitor General made a long speech which lasted nearly the whole of the ninth day. I do not remember most of it. All I know is that it seemed to cover every possible point in the case, and, naturally, to be dead against the accused man. I was most interested in what the Solicitor General had to say about Davis. He told the jury that, from Ardlamont, Davis had been traced to London, and that on August 15th or 16th he vanished, and he also said that Monson had deliberately misled people as to the real character and whereabouts of Davis. Then there was another long speech, for the prisoner, by Mr. Comrie Thompson, who made a great point of the fact that if Mr. Monson had killed Mr. Hambro, he would have done away with the only fixed income he had, because the bounty of Mr. Tottenham, on which they were living, was dependent on the young officer's life. Mr. Thompson pointed out that Mr. Monson, Davis, and Mr. Hambro were the only three persons who knew what happened in the wood at Ardlamont. He told the jury that Davis was a sick man, a dying man, a bookmaker, yes, but one of the quietest, most amiable, and gentlest of men. He certainly was, judging from my long knowledge of him. Mr. Thompson scoffed at the idea that Mr. Monson should have lured on such a man as Davis to be a witness either to an attempt at murder or murder itself, and he declared that it was the greatest calamity in the world that Davis was not able to enter the witness box. So there was nothing for it, one man being dead, 
one unable to speak because he was a prisoner, and the third having vanished, but to rely on circumstantial evidence. The Lord Justice Clerk also told the jury that the evidence was purely circumstantial, but he made it clear that he did not see any good ground for supposing that Davis had gone to Ardlamont as a party to a murder plot, and he told the jury that it had not been made out that Davis had disappeared at the instance of the prisoner. The case had to be considered quite apart from the disappearance of Davis. The most terrible time of all came when the jury retired. It was bad enough for those who were waiting in court after all those wearisome days. How much more dreadful must it have been for the man whose very life was at stake and whose fate depended on the utterance of a single word? The jury were absent for about an hour and a quarter. Then they slowly returned into court, and the awful suspense was ended. They returned a verdict of not proven on both charges. Monson was a free man again, and he briskly left the dock, in which he had been so long a prisoner and so closely guarded, and disappeared. Some months after the trial, a curious thing happened in Edinburgh, for Davis himself, who had been proclaimed an outlaw, appeared in a music hall, as an assistant, I believe, to a conjurer. He had evidently taken to that sort of business as a means of making a living. I do not pretend to know what legal formalities had to be gone through by him to set himself entirely free, so to speak, but as a matter of fact, he took steps to clear himself from the sentence which had been passed upon him, with the result that the punishment of outlawry was recalled, as they put it, which means, I suppose, that the sentence was quashed. No steps were taken to bring him to trial for the offense which had been preferred against him when the famous mystery became public property, and I take it that this meant that, so far as he was concerned, the affair was at an end. That is the story of the Ardlamont mystery, so far as the general public know it, and pretty nearly all there was to learn came out in that long trial at Edinburgh, but there is one very interesting fact which the general public does not know, and with which very few people have become acquainted. It is this, that during all the time the hue and cry was raised after Davis, when frantic efforts were being made to discover his whereabouts, and when not a trace of him could be discovered. He was hiding in the east end of London. He told my husband that he was in the east end all the time, and never left it. If Davis had come out of hiding and left London, I do not think he could have escaped capture. He never came back to our house again, and I do not know what happened to him. I liked him very much, and it grieved me when I knew that he was mixed up in this awful mystery. End of chapter 12 An Unsolved Mystery The Ardlamont Riddle